Interestingly, there was a study from the Far East, historically from like the 18th century, where eunuchs had actually outlived their unaltered contemporaries by 20 years. And now I am <laughs> certainly not advocating for that particular treatment in order for men to live longer. However, it doesn't mean that we can't do a heck of a lot better than we're doing now. Welcome to another episode of the Interesting People Podcast. I'm Patrick Haynes. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Michael Costello. Mike, how's it going? Very well, thank you. I want to really thank you. I missed my Men's Health Month thing, but we're going to be talking about men's health today. Where do you practice? I practice at Parkview Medical Group here in Frederick. Oh, fantastic. So you also work with FMH as well, right? Indeed. So we're going to talk about men's health, particular that Movember fact that floats around, that men live on average six years less than women. Straight up, is that true? That's very close. In fact, the life expectancy for women in the U.S. has been about the same in the past five years. is about 81 years, and for men, it's about 76 years. So it's about five years, but you're very close. Oof. Man. Okay, so this is something. What are the main causes as to why they're living less? Some of it's biological. Some of it's social. There's a lot of research going into it. In fact, even primates like orangutans and baboons, the females live longer than the males do. Oh, really? So it's not just social things, but there's many, many things that are speculated to be factors. Things, unfortunately, like testosterone may be involved. Men get high blood pressure earlier. They get heart disease earlier than women do. Women have estrogen, which seems to help protect them from those things. Some of the things are biological. Other things are social. Men smoke more than women still, although we're smoking less. And men have other habits. They take riskier behaviors. They commit suicide more often. They have more accidents. There's a whole host of factors that are involved. I don't know if you have a similar story to me, but when I broke my arm, I straight up ignored it for a day and a half before I went and got the thing looked at. Well, that's not only my personal experience, but it's also the experience of the scientists that have looked into it. Men seek care later. They they care more than women do. They have seen doctors less than women have. In fact, in the past year, 39% of men say they've had a general checkup, whereas 82% of women in the last two years have had a general checkup. And there's all kinds of statistics that bear that out. That's like a bigger gap than I was kind of expecting. So what are the main things that men are also ignoring in general, too? Their health in general. Men, if they have a symptom, they're less likely to get seen for it. Preventive care, they're less likely to do that. The only things that women, interestingly, are are more likely to have economic factors be a barrier to being seen. But beyond that, men are lagging behind in every healthcare-seeking behaviors. So I guess they also skip yearly physicals and stuff like that as well. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that we're trying to do is to get men involved in those. Fortunately, a number of things are starting to get men more involved. For example, corporate health programs that require men and women to be seen in order to have discounts on their health insurance really help get men in so we can get them started on health preventive maintenance. A couple of years ago, we used to be, if you got a physical, corporate would send you a Best Buy gift card. And then all of a sudden, I don't know that they went, all right, well, it'll cost you 30% more if you don't get a physical. I have not missed a physical since they did the 30% thing. Are you seeing the positive versus negative reinforcement in other places? Oh, absolutely. Almost everyone from my own personal experience, from my insurance, almost everybody who's involved in a large employer or even medium-sized employer is going to need to have some type of corporate health maintenance, whether it's just blood tests, whether it's a physical, and anything that gets a person in the door, in my view, is positive. Prostate cancer, that's a big thing that comes up. When should men start being worried about that? Is that another immediate thing? It depends, first of all, a little bit on ethnicity. So African-American men, more like 40 to 45 years old. For Caucasian men and Asian men and other ethnicities, it's 50. Prostate cancer is a little bit different, though. Prostate cancer is not always deadly. Half of all cancers that are picked up by screening 
are kind of like moss on the side of a tree. They're never going to bother you. The other half can kill you. And if you are not a smoker as a man, prostate cancer is the number one cancer killer. So that's a big deal. How do we tell the difference between the prostate cancer that can kill you and the one that's going to sit like moss on the side of a tree? And it's a really big deal because treating prostate cancer is not a process that you can just say, well, I'm just going to do it because it can really harm you. It's very important to know what prostate cancer we're going to treat and what we're going to leave alone. That is a big controversy in medicine. Up until about three months ago, I wasn't even screening for prostate cancer because we were told not to do it. Really? So it's very difficult. We need a much better test. Today's test is the PSA blood test. It is just an okay test. It needs to be better, but it's the best we've got for right now. So I do recommend that men talk to their doctor about prostate cancer screening, particularly after age 50 or 40 if you're African-American, but it's not a simple procedure. It's something you need to talk about the details, even though it'll take a few extra minutes to do that. So the PSA blood test. I'd heard from a lot of people, I thought prostate cancer is you drop your pants and they just kind of check for it. Is that not actually it? Well, interestingly, some research has shown that a rectal exam does not necessarily increase pickup for prostate cancer. That isn't really as important as the PSA or the new test that hopefully will be coming out. A lot of men are worried about going to see the doctor. Well, I'm not going to go because they're going to do that terrible exam to me. And when it turns out that you could actually decline that exam and still have a reasonably good prostate cancer screen. And in fact, I think that's a really big thing for men because a lot of times they're worried that they're going to have to do something embarrassing or humiliating when they're getting health screenings, when in fact, a lot of what we we do is not embarrassing or humiliating. And in fact, they can decline what they want, accept what they want, and have a lot of choice during the course of the exam. So it's better for them to get in and at least get what they are willing to accept. Yeah, that is kind of the weird, I guess, the double-edged sword of masculinity where people will try to tough things up. And when they're put in the situation to get care, they're embarrassed. <laughs> Absolutely. And our job as doctors is to try not to judge them for what they're going to take versus what they're not going to take. My job is to say, hey, you're willing to accept A, B, and C? Great. If you're not willing to accept D, E, and F, we'll leave that for another day. But my job is to get you to do as many things as we can to keep you healthy. PSA blood, is that just something you'd get from standard blood drawing that you get at your yearly physical or something like that? I think that's a little bit of a fallacy. There's no standard blood draw. Every single blood test is targeted at a specific age or gender or past medical history or symptom. So it's not like we just check off a box. It's we do an interview, we look at a specific set of risk factors, and then we assess what a person needs, and then we decide what to do. Oh, really? Okay. Moving on to the next one, testicular cancer. When should people start worrying about that? Testicular cancer is primarily 18 to 35-year-olds. Oh, really? So it's young men rather than older men. And the biggest thing we recommend is for men to do self-testicular exams. The technique is not what's important. What's important is that you know that what your testicles feel like. So if a lump appears, you'll get seen for it. Most lumps are not cancer. But if cancer is detected, almost all testicular cancer is curable. That's why it's so important to make sure that you check yourself so that if you ever find anything, you can get cured. So almost all of it's cured. So this is 100%. If you ignore it, you're doing yourself a huge disservice. Then. Absolutely. I had never heard that testicular cancer was so, I guess, covered then. So that's why Scott Hamilton and Lance Armstrong and all these people were out in the media saying, hey, get yourself taken care of because we all survived. You know what? I never put those two things together. <laughs> Did I miss any of the other main issues? There's prostate cancer, testicular cancer, general health, and general. Well, colon cancer screening, that's a much more cut and dried. Again, African-American, 45, Caucasian, and other ethnicities, 50. And that's another thing. Colon cancer screening, a lot of people think, well, it has to be a colonoscopy. By the way, colonoscopy is not that big a deal. I've had two of them. It's sort of a non-issue as far as the test itself. The prep is a little bit annoying, gives you cramps and diarrhea for a couple of hours, but it's only every five to 10 years. Not 
that bad for something that could save your life. Now, if people don't even want to do that, or if they're concerned they're going to miss too much work, there's a new test called Cologuard, and that involves using stool, colon cancer, and polyps, that's growth that can turn into cancer later, secrete genetic material, DNA, that can be detected in the stool. And this is a relatively, it's not that new of a test, but it's been newly accepted by the insurance companies, even Medicare. And so if you're a little bit too uncomfortable with the idea of colonoscopy, you can have this much less invasive test. Many of my patients are choosing it. It's not quite as good as colonoscopy, but we'd much rather have you do something and nothing. So it's another one of those opportunities for men who are feeling a little squeamish, don't always think that everything's going to be terrible and humiliating. It's a lot easier to do this other test if you don't want to do colonoscopy, and you can still get some type of colon cancer screening. So is cancer like the big worry these days or the big worry in general? For men over 35, the big things are heart disease and cancer. Heart disease, we think about cholesterol, blood sugar, blood pressure, smoking, and family history. Those are the big things that we always concentrate on those things. After 35, number one thing that's going to get you is heart disease. You can still get hit by a bus, but if you can stay away from heart disease and cancer, those are the big things. Number one cancer for men and women after 35 is lung cancer. But if you don't smoke, it's harder to get lung cancer. After that for men is prostate, which we talked about. Mm -hmm. After that is colon. Those are what I call the major warranty items. If you can stay away from those, you're likely going to live a pretty long time and do very well. With heart disease, is that's lifestyle, right? Or Well, other than just you said family history, is that a lot of like make you have a proper diet and you're exercising? Well, absolutely. But you could do all that and still have high blood pressure, which of course you can't feel. And so it's as simple as somebody sticking a cuff on your arm and checking your blood pressure once a year, which is what's recommended. If you get your blood pressure checked and you have high blood pressure, sometimes you don't need medicine. Sometimes it's a matter of losing weight, quitting smoking, whatever it is. Sometimes blood pressure medicines are needed, but that's another fallacy. Men have been told that if I take blood pressure medicine, I'm going to have terrible side effects, not going to be able to have relations with my wife anymore, things of that nature. It's absolutely not true. We can take care of blood pressure in such a way that it won't cost you a lot of money, you won't have a lot of side effects, and we'll be able to keep you away from heart attacks and strokes. It's important to get those types of screenings. Same thing for cholesterol. Some people need medicine, some people don't. Screening for diabetes is extremely important because it's getting extremely common, particularly as people, unfortunately, get more and more overweight. So you're seeing a lot more diabetes cases? Oh my gosh, it's incredibly common. I guess we haven't really touched on, you're a family doctor. Right? I am indeed. So how did you get into that? I got into it because I couldn't decide which type of doctor I wanted to be. <laughs> Actually, I admired my family doctor. When I was seeing my family doctor for a problem when I was a child, my father cut his thumb. And during that visit, my family doctor looked at my father who had his thumb wadded up in a handkerchief, all this blood, and he asked him what he'd done and he cut it making a sandwich. And he actually sewed up my father's thumb while he did my follow-up visit and would not charge my father for that. And I always trace becoming a family doctor back to that moment. But I'm fascinated with all aspects of medicine, so that's why I decided to do it. So you see just all kinds of men, women, children, all that kind of stuff as a family doctor. Newborns to elderly. Do you find that people stick with you? I've been practicing in Maryland for... 25 plus years and I have patients that are still with me though from the whole even though some of them were from the other county where I used to be they're still with me are you local? Yeah. I grew up in Pennsylvania, but I did my residency at Andrews Air Force Base and then was in South Carolina for a few years, but I've been in this area since 91. What are some of the ways that you've seen things change over the last 25 years then? Oh my gosh. Well, I guess the <laughs> biggest thing is technology. We did records on paper and the technology just of diagnosis. I mean, when I was in training, something like getting a CAT scan or an ultrasound was like a big deal. You had to make an appointment for that far in advance. It was tremendously expensive. And now it's on every corner. We have a 
electronic health records. Surgery has changed, and that's all non-invasive now. We can get tests that we could never get. There's just so much more that we can do for people. But unfortunately, it's also changed, so sometimes some people don't use their clinical skills as much <laughs> as they used to. So I'm kind of old school. I'm kind of the bridge between the old and the new. <laughs> you know, but there's so many different things that have changed, and people's expectations have changed. So now, in the age of technology, people have looked up everything before they come into the office. And people sometimes wonder if that's a bad thing. I never consider it a bad thing. I mean, sometimes a person's sources might not be the exact same as mine. But a lot of times, uh, people's education and preparation, getting ready for a visit, really helps in terms of knowing what they what they're looking for. And even if they didn't come up with the exact right diagnosis, sometimes they do. Sometimes a person has thought of something I haven't thought of, huh. and I'm real upfront about it. I'm, I'm not offended. Yeah. If they've come up with something, well, I think I might have this condition, I'll say, by gosh, maybe you're right. Let's look into that. So a patient's access to information can be a really positive thing. The helpful part of that, too, is this people are so more focused on symptoms then. Sure. And I think that the information age allows them to explore the symptoms a little bit. And even if they don't get the exact right diagnosis, lets them start to conceptualize the same process that I'm going through as I'm trying to figure out what they have. Do you have issue with kids where you feel like sometimes they're just not telling the truth in terms of, like, what's wrong with them or anything like that? Oh, sure. Well, I mean, every age, if you start from a newborn where you have to go completely from the cues of their bodies and their eyes, you have people who have dementia who can't tell you, and you have everyone in between who may be in pain, embarrassed, worried, fearful. Sometimes it's not so much a matter that they're concealing something because they want to, but because they don't know what it means, they're afraid what it means. From all the way back in medical school, one of the things that we always learned was how to get the information from people. In my medical school, even in the 80s, we had videotaped sessions where actors were paid to conceal their symptoms and make us draw it out. This is something that we're taught how to do because people don't always just lay everything out on the table, particularly in mental health issues. But that's okay because that's part of what we're supposed to be good at. Do you see people come to you first with mental health issues? How does that come up as a family practitioner? In family medicine, mental health is, I forget the percentage, like 30 or 40%. Things like depression anxiety, attention deficit disorder. These are things that are bread and butter issues for us. And we're extremely comfortable with them because frankly, the psychiatrists are taking care of schizophrenia and severe bipolar disorder and people that have problems that are very, very severe. If they took care of all the people with depression and anxiety, you'd never be able to get in with them. So we take care of that. And the other thing is, is that people, you often feel more comfortable coming to their family doctor or their internist or whomever for their depression or anxieties. They feel a little stigmatized sometimes to go to psychiatrists, but oh, if I could just go to my family doctor, to talk about my depression or my anxiety. Well, that doesn't seem so bad. And a lot of times they don't even realize that their symptoms are actually being caused by depression or anxiety. If we can talk to them about their symptoms a little bit and we've ruled out some of the things and we can say, well, you know, I know that this symptom seems to you like X, Y, or Z, but I'm beginning to think that after we've talked about some of the things that this is, might be something to do with your mood, let's talk about that. Then we've actually gotten permission to enter that area in a way that they don't feel stigmatized or humiliated so that we have that opportunity where a psychiatrist might not. So we can enter the mental health care field with patients in a, a more comfortable way. And then when we do suggest treatment, we have this history with them. So they learn to trust us from other interactions. And so that all tends to go but more smoothly. Do you see with mental health the similar kind of thing with men and women where men are more likely to ignore it? Yes. And I think that's true. But I think men have been socialized to do that. So men feel that it's not manly to talk about feelings. If you hey sit around with a bunch of 
bunch of guys. What do they talk about? Football scores. What do they talk about? Working out. What are they talking about? Maybe women. But they're just not socialized to talk. You sit around with a bunch of women. They're constantly talking about feelings. Mm-hmm. It's not surprising that, that a man would not talk about feelings with a healthcare provider. It is up to us as healthcare providers to look at men, look at their facial expressions. And as they talk to us, a man will tear up in my office and I can either look at that and recognize it and explore it or I can ignore it. I'm going to choose to explore that and I'm going to say, hey, what's going on? And they're going to say, well, my mom died or my mom's sick or my wife, you've been yelling at me or whatever it is. And I can explore that with them. And men will show that often as much as women will. I just have, but they might not say it with words. When it comes to treatment, I think some people are worried about medication. Where do you come in terms of treatment? Is it medication or is it just like, hey, continue talking? Okay, so for example, for depression, so there's two things that can be equally helpful. So psychotherapy can be helpful for depression. There's something called cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a very specific type of therapy, which changes our brains. Let's go back for a minute. So depression is caused by a lack of certain chemicals in the brain. You can treat that with medicine or you can treat it with therapy. Both are equally effective. It's purely based on the person's preference. There's a lot of people that choose therapy and it's a wonderful way to go. Medicines, though, take a little bit less time. There's a little bit less time commitment. It can be a little cheaper because it's involved extra co-pays for more visits. When it comes to medicines, we definitely have a lot to offer to people. Medicines for depression, for example, are not habit-forming. And the key is communication as always. So what I always tell patients is, I'm going to recommend this medicine, but there's no blood test or x-ray or CAT scan to tell me which medicine's your best medicine for your mood. I have to have you let me know. If you have a side effect, you got to tell me. If it's not working, you got to tell me. So many patients feel that they have to trade their mood for something else. If I give them medicine for their mood and they're feeling better, but now they have you know, terrible dry mouth or constipation or whatever it is, that they just have to deal with that. No, that's not what we're expecting. We're expecting you to feel better and not have a side effect. Communication is the key. Okay, so that seems to be the big thing, communication, communication, communication. Absolutely. <laughs> Actually, I'm kind of curious. Crossover-wise, I interviewed a professional makeup artist, and he said that he had done disaster simulation. Have you ever seen that before where they've made up people to look like they have, either they've been in a horrible car accident or anything like that? Sure. You've seen that in person? Well, I was in the Air Force, so we did disaster simulations and casualty combat simulations, and so they had to do that as part of that. So you were in the Air Force? Yes. Did it also lead into your medical training or anything like well, that? Well, Uncle Sam paid for my medical school, and I gave him back a few years in, in return. Did you do any kind of traveling with that? Not a lot because I was in primarily from like 85 to 91. So that was during the first Gulf conflict. I was pretty lucky because there was not a lot of combat. There was a lot of air combat, but not a lot of, there were not a lot of ballistic casualties. Fortunately, we were all set up for that. My commander told me during the middle of that, that it was time to go do my duty in the sand. That was the bad news. The good news, it was Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, because I didn't have <laughs> to go to Saudi or anything like that. So fortunately, I did not have to do any really bad stuff back then. But it was a great experience. The Air Force gave me great training. I did everything from deliver babies to doing combat casualty exercises. It was pretty amazing. Since you have an Air Force background, we've talked a lot about communication being a thing. Do you find it easier? Do you have a lot of vets that are coming to you? Yeah, because we're right near Fort Detrick and everything. And even though there's a VA outpost there and everything, you know, we have tons of vets. And it's great to be able to bond with the vets. You know, we understand a little bit about what they've been through and the military mentality. And it's fun 
fun. I really enjoy that. Are they more willing to get checkups or anything like that, people that have been in the military? Here's what they're willing to do. They're willing to participate in sort of group health. For example, when you ask a vet, I would like you to take this generic blood pressure medicine because this really, really expensive blood pressure medicine is no better for you. It's not going to give you any fewer side effects. And if we give you this expensive blood pressure medicine, then it's going to create these expenses that this other person's not going to be able to get their care. They'll nod and say, no, that's cool. I get that because they saw it in the military. So they're more willing to sort of participate in healthcare as a group public health activity, which is kind of really cool. Is there anything else that came up in your research that you'd like to hit on? One of the things I think that you had mentioned was, is what do I think that people could do so that men could improve their health. So men right now are lagging behind women. Obviously, we can't change our testosterone. Interestingly, there was a study from the Far East where they looked at historically from like the 18th century where eunuchs in this society had actually outlived their unaltered contemporaries by 20 years. And now I am <laughs> certainly not advocating for that particular treatment in order for men to live longer. But what I can say is there's certain biological things that are going to make it a little harder for men to live as long as women do. However, it doesn't mean that we can't do a heck of a lot better than we're doing now. And obviously, I have a vet, being a man, I have a vested interest yeah. <laughs> and has nothing to do with the bonus I get if my patients live longer than 100. So, <laughs> so here's some things that men can definitely do to live longer, at least to get better health care. One, and this is what people around them can do. One is it's been shown over and over again that when spouses, partners, significant others of uh, men encourage them to seek health care, they do so. What I would say to women is, and the people who love men, is if you see something going on where they're not getting their preventive care or they're not being seen for a symptom, if you gently encourage them, even over and over again if necessary, hmm. they will tend to seek care. And that has been shown to help. So that's a big one. Second of all, we as parents can socialize our sons to say it is good to be strong. It's good to be self-reliant. It's good to be a man. But on the other hand, it's also good to seek help. It is not unmanly to acknowledge that we're interdependent on other people. And that is the message we're sending to our daughters. Why can't we send it to our sons? Mm -hmm. Be in touch with your body. Girls are taught to be in touch with their bodies from a very young age. We can tell our boys to do the same thing. Another thing is that healthcare providers, I think, need to be a little more sensitive towards men in terms of both the nonverbal cues and accepting when men want to decline certain things. That's fine. We'll get to it another time. And finally, employers and businesses, I mentioned, are doing a positive thing by providing incentives for men as well as women to, to get into the healthcare system with physicals or cholesterols or blood pressures, whatever it is. But unfortunately, employers often also expect people to work 70-hour weeks. It is encouraged. We as Americans have an incredibly high rate of productivity, but it's mostly because we work incredibly long hours. We don't take as many vacations. You've heard all the statistics, I'm sure. But one of the things is that people are actively discouraged from taking an hour off to go get their health care. And I think employers and business people need to kind of walk the walk when it comes to that and say, okay, I know it's going to be a little bit inconvenient, but if you really need to go get that colonoscopy, we're going to have to give you the time off to do that. Or if you're going to go get that broken arm taken care of, <laughs> you need to go do that. So those are some of the things that I think would help. And not to mention is that I think getting access to care in general, and I realize that borders on being political, but the bottom line is whatever mechanism we choose, one of the big barriers that we didn't talk about is economic. If you don't have insurance and you don't have any money to pay for care, you're not going to get care, whether you're a man or a woman. And one of the number one reasons people cite men, 
particularly as not going to get care is that they couldn't get time off of work or that they and a lot of people said that they couldn't afford it. So if we can get whatever mechanism we choose, we'll try not to be too political. Yeah. Whatever mechanism we choose, we need to get people access to care. We're all working towards that. And I will say just uh, anecdotally, one of the biggest failures of my whole so I, I'm, I try to be a very positive person in all the things that I do is when I was selling the whole mustache, I, I grew a mustache from November and was walking around talking about men's health. The biggest pushback I got from a lot of people were like, well, I can't afford it. So why bother? And it's like, oh, man, whew, yep. you could take an extra walk, maybe. or Drop, something. Like, it, Don't drink soda. Right. <laughs> trying to find ways, those, those little itty bitty yep. things yep. where it's like, my goodness, every little thing else. But yeah, I, I got that. That was my main pushback from people was right. just economics, which I was not expecting. It did not occur to me. And our job as providers has become, it's not something we learned in medical school, but it's certainly become part of our job is to help people get around the difficult economics, whether it's loss of a job, loss of insurance. How do we make it work for people? And we're really, really trying. And we're proud of the moments that we can help people get around those barriers. Well, you know what? I wrap up my interview interviews with the same question for everybody. What has you excited? What are you looking forward to about 2018? I'm excited about just the efforts like yours in terms of, you know, getting people more healthy, getting more people involved in care and getting them healthier. Interestingly, I think being healthier is almost, it's fashionable, which is kind of <laughs> neat. When people look at each other, they talk about, what are you doing for exercise? Oh, I'm on this diet, even guys, which is great. So that's, it's exciting that people are seeing improving their health care as a a fashionable, positive thing to do and that they're seeking that out. And I'm excited about that. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you.